As we stand and worship Him this evening, uh, we are going to look at 1 Timothy. So if you have your place in the Word of God, I invite you to open there. Uh, if not, the words should be on the screen behind me. We have been going through this series, uh, The Church That Jesus Built. And so we've looked the last few weeks in Matthew's Gospel when Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And then we spent two weeks in Hebrews comparing the Old Covenant and the New. And now we move into 1 Timothy for the practical instruction of what the church of the living God is supposed to look like. And so we're going to begin tonight going through that book, just looking at the first two verses of 1 Timothy. So Paul writes to a young man who will pastor a church in Ephesus, and he says these words, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray tonight. Lord God, we thank You that 2,000 years later, Your church is still here. That, Father, we have a place to gather as believers throughout the world to preach, to sing, to pray, to fellowship, to take communion, and most of all, to lift up the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, as we gather in this place tonight, we've already felt You and Your Spirit and now we ask that through the preaching of Your Word, God, You would minister to us, that You would help us to open our ears, our eyes, and our hearts to receive whatever it is that You have for us, God. For the one here tonight that may be lost, God, I pray that they would see the condemnation that their sin carries, but the good news that Christ came to set them free. And Lord, by, sh- by shedding His blood on that cross, He offers forgiveness to all those that will come by faith. And maybe tonight, Lord, there's someone here that's, that's just struggling, that's burdened, that's backslidden, that's let the world come into their life and they've lost their joy and their peace and their comfort. Lord, I pray that tonight you would speak to them as you spoke to the prodigal and say that they can come home and experience the forgiveness and the love that's theirs in Christ. So Lord, have your way in this service. May you speak to us and may you do a great work here tonight so that we leave here praising you and that we would go out into a lost and dying world and tell them the reason for the hope that is in us. We thank you and we praise you. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated tonight. The title of the message is Saved to Serve. And we just read two verses um, that are really just a salutation. They're a greeting from Paul. Paul normally opens all of his letters with a greeting. Most of them are in the same style. They're very familiar. Um, If you read through his 13, 14 epistles, depending on if you think he wrote Hebrews, um, you know, they're all pretty common in their greetings. And so, he, uh, he starts off in a similar manner in the letter to Timothy. But I want to read to you a little story as we begin tonight. And it's a, it's a characterization of a cartoon that was made up many years ago. And it says this, a cartoon showed a picture of a woman lying in her sickbed. So try to get a picture of this as I describe it to you. There's a woman lying in her sickbed, obviously in misery. In the sink were stacked piles of dirty dishes. A huge basket of clothes to be washed sat nearby. Two dirty children were fighting in one corner, and in the other corner a cat sat licking up milk that had been spilled. A smiling woman stood in the doorway, and a caption above her said this, Well, Florence, if there is anything I can do to help, don't hesitate to let me know. And the writer goes on to say, And sadly, this can be the picture of many local churches. Pastors and church staff are overwhelmed with work. More needy people cry out for their attention than they have time for. 
Many programs lack sufficient volunteers. Sick and shut-ins need visited. New people need someone to befriend them. The missions program needs dedicated volunteers. Facilities need maintenance and improvements. And yet people say, if there's anything I can do to help, please let me know. And so you hear the message and you decide to take a stab at getting involved and doing something for the Lord. But not very far into the process, you find yourself in over your head. You thought you would be serving in line with your gifts and abilities, but you find yourself overwhelmed with inadequacy as you face a situation not in line with or perhaps far beyond your gifts and abilities. You thought you would be having a wonderful time of fellowship with others in the body, but instead you find fellow Christians being petty, criticizing you for minor things. You thought everyone would like you, but they're not being nice. You thought everyone would appreciate your contribution, but instead you haven't heard a word of thanks. You thought that serving the Lord would be fun, but you discover that it is fun like war is fun. The reason why I use that illustration as we begin is Timothy, Paul's protege, found himself in a situation just like that. He perhaps thought that Serving the Lord Jesus Christ alongside of such a great man like the Apostle Paul would be simply a wonderful and exciting time of ministry. And I'm sure that in many ways it was, but it wasn't idyllic for him either. He faced many hardships and many troubles and many trials in his ministry. And Paul writes these letters to this young man and also to another pastor, Titus, to instruct him and warn him and encourage him that ministry church is not easy, but it's so worth it. It's so worth it. And we will reap if we faint not. And the reason why so many pastors, church members, and congregations as a whole fail to experience the blessings and rewards of serving Christ as they quit before the harvest comes. But let me read to you what Paul wrote or what Luke wrote, rather, in Acts 14.22 of the Apostle Paul, he went throughout the region in his missionary journeys, strengthening the souls of the disciples and encouraging them to continue in the faith. And listen to what he tells them. Saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. He doesn't paint a fairy tale picture. Jesus said, in this life you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. You're fooling yourself to think that when you follow the Lord Jesus Christ and serve Him and His church, that everything will be easy. That the devil will back off and say, well, go at it. Have a good time. That's not how it works. He turns up the heat. He turns up the pressure. But he's defeated. And he can't touch us. And we forget that sometimes and we quit before we reap. And so when we look at this letter to Timothy and we think about what Paul is saying, um, you know, God's plan for all of us as believers is to serve in some capacity. We, I say all the time that we quote Ephesians 2.8.9, For by grace are you saved through faith, right? That not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And then we stop. We stop there and we don't go on and read the following verses. 
Because he tells us in verse 10 that we are his workmanship. We are his poema is the Greek word. It means literally where we get our English word poem from. He is writing a story. He is writing out a masterpiece, so to speak, with his prized possession. He enables us to be a part of his work. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. He has a plan for us, not just to save us and set us on our way until we drift off, float off into glory. He's got work for us to do. He saves us so that we can serve. And one of my duties as a pastor is to help you find your gift and calling and prepare you to serve. That's what Paul writes in Ephesians 4.12. Pastors' duties are to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Pastors often burn out because they try to do all the work of the ministry. That's what the church is for. You all have gifts and talents and abilities. Don't bury those in the ground. Use them for the glory of God. Whatever it is, don't think that your gift is inadequate. You are part of the body of Christ. And every part is important. There are no small roles when it comes to eternity. Everything is important, and you are important because God has set you and placed you in a local congregation to be active and to be involved. And so when He saves us, He sets us on a course to serve. And we have to find our place and find our gift and our talent and use those. And that's what the church is for. One of the things the church is for, it's the headquarters of that. It's to help you and establish you and help you to grow and find your place. And so we are evangelistic in the sense that we're sending people. The Great Commission says, go and make disciples. Mark says, go into all the world and preach the gospel. And so we know as believers that we are missionaries, maybe not to other countries, but just to our own backyards. We have a message to go and proclaim and preach and baptize and make disciples and teach. That's the duty of all who follow Christ. But we also have an internal job to edify and exhort and help one another to multiply and grow internally as well as externally. Paul would write to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, some instruction about being a disciple that makes disciples. And he says there, what you've heard from me... So Paul had a message... He passed it on to Timothy. He said, what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, take that that I've given you and entrust it to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Do you see the process? We're passing this on from one to another, down the line. Disciples making disciples. And the church grows and multiplies by that process. Right? And so, the Apostle Paul is modeling that for us in the Scriptures. And as I said, we have the names of two of these men have epistles named after them. Timothy and Titus were both young men that Paul had raised up to become pastors. Timothy in Ephesus and Titus in Crete. And so these men are training, mentored by the Apostle himself. And those three letters in your Bible make up what is known as the pastoral epistles. But they're not just letters for pastors. They're letters written to pastors and the local churches. 
And not just the local churches of those days, but local churches even unto today, even to K. Russo Church, on how the church should function and how it should operate as a New Testament church under the headship of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we don't have to try and figure out how to do this thing. We just simply need to follow the instructions given us. And that's why I want to go through these letters, or at least 1 Timothy for now, so that we can have an understanding about what it is that God has for His church and how we are to operate. And so Timothy is a young man. He's probably at this time in his mid-30s, so he's about 30 years Paul's, you know, Paul is 30 years his senior, basically. Timothy came from a mixed background. His mother Eunice was a Jew. His father was a Greek, probably an unbeliever. And so he has a, a mixed household. And, and, and Timothy, most believe, was saved under Paul's ministry, probably in his first missionary journey to Lystra, a place called Lystra. He was saved under Paul's ministry there. And uh, Paul begins to invest in this young man. And, and we read through the Scriptures about Timothy, and we find out that he's probably a timid young man. He's probably timid Timothy. You know, we call it Doubting Thomas. Well, we here we have, you know, timid Timothy. Uh, he has uh, got some stomach issues. Paul tells him in another place, drink a little wine for his stomach. So perhaps he's, he's a little bit ill and got some problems there. So when you look at this guy, he's not this big, strapping, strong, courageous, bold kind of guy. He, he may be thin and sickly and a little bit timid and standoffish, right? Because God uses the foolish things of the world. And we often have a picture in our mind of how people ought to be and how things ought to look. And it may look a little bit different than what God is going to do. So a lot of times you think, man, I, you know, all through the Scriptures we see that. We see it with Moses, right? Man, I, God, find somebody else. I can't talk. I can't do that. I'm not going to go to Pharaoh and speak, right? And yet God wants to use people who can't do things. Why? Because He gets the glory. When He takes somebody that can't do something and shows through His power and might that they can do it, because we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. When He gives us the ability, He gets glory. Right? He gets the praise. If, if He picked out people that could handle it in their own strength, we don't need Him. Right? We just go out and do it in our own effort. And so, uh, you know, everyone has an opinion on how the church ought to function. On how things ought to be done. Right? But there are certain things that, you know, we can have preferences on. Right? But we shouldn't be divisive over those things. We shouldn't divide over our preferences and our opinions. Right? But there are some things that are spelled out clearly in the Word of God. And it doesn't matter what our preference is. God says, no, this is how they are to be done. And so when you go to a Christian bookstore, if there's not many left anymore, but if you can find one or you certainly go online, there's hundreds, hundreds of books on church growth and church models and church programs. Everybody's got a way to see the church grow uh, and to be successful. But there's only one book, the book that I'm preaching to you from, that has divine authority and instruction on how the church ought to function. It is one book alone that carries with it the authority of God. And that's the first thing I want you to see in our text tonight that we read. It says, Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the commandment of God our Savior. Paul is saying that I have a calling as an apostle 
that came from God. The things that I am about to say to you, Timothy, come not from my own opinion, not from my own making up. They carry with it the divine authority of the one that has given it to me. Because the Bible says of itself, all Scripture is given by what? Inspiration of God. That word means it's God-breathed. It literally, the Hebrew translation of that word is in Genesis when God breathes life into Adam and he became a living soul. That's the same idea. The Word of God is inspired. It's God-breathed. It's alive. The Word of God is quick, right? Hebrews 4.12, that means life-giving. The Word of God is life-giving and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. See, the Word of God is alive. That's why you can read it for 30, 40, 50 years and always find new things as you read it because it's living. It's the living Word of God. And so it carries with it the authority of God. When you open up these pages, you ever you hear people say, I wish God would speak to me. He does. He is. Through 66 books of the Bible, He's speaking to you directly through His Word. And so, you know, Jesus, we saw a few weeks ago, is building His church. He said, I will build My church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And He's building His church with people that He has saved and called out of the world. And so, we have to understand how that looks. When I became a pastor, it wasn't because a local church called me to be a pastor. My call as a pastor came from God. And any man who is called to be a pastor better have been called by God. The problem with a lot of churches is there's too many people in the pulpits that haven't been called by God. They, they called themselves. They, they decided to go to seminary and get a degree. And now they feel led to pastor a church. But God's man has to be called by God Himself. And when a church ordains and recognizes that call on a man's life, they're simply affirming what God has already done. Don't ever think that a pulpit committee calls pastors. If you're thinking that, you got it backwards. God calls pastors. The pulpit committee recognizes God's call on that person's life and affirms them in that local body as their shepherd. Right? Too often, we have men or councils or cliques that are making and forming and molding the church as they want it to go. And that's not biblical. That's not biblical the Lord Jesus said He will build His church. And He ordains and sends and calls those to that church who He wants to minister there. And so He gifts and equips those that He wants to serve in that church. Uh, he appoints those leaders and anytime man gets in the way, it's trouble. I love Psalm 127 verse 1. It says, Unless the Lord builds the house, he who labors, labors in vain. If God's not building this thing, we are spinning our wheels. It's His church to do with as He pleases, and we are His servants to simply present ourselves to Him for whatever call and reason that He has. And so Paul says, I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God. And then look what else he says about God. He says, I've been called by the command of God. What? What's he say after that? God our Savior 
Paul was called to serve God because God had saved his soul. And that was the only thing that made him worthy and able to serve God. Too many people put the cart before the horse, right? They want to serve God, and they've never really had a real relationship with God. They want to get in church and get baptized and get busy, but they've never surrendered their life to Christ first. And you can't serve a God you don't know. You've got to be saved and born again and sealed with the Spirit and gifted by the Spirit and empowered by the Spirit, and then you serve. You don't serve to work your way into God's presence. You're saved, and then you enter into His presence to serve Him. And so that is the thing that we see in this letter to Timothy. And I want you to see something else that Paul writes in the second Timothy in his letter there to Paul. Listen to what he says in Second Timothy chapter two, verses three and four. Because I'm convinced that I'm so guilty of doing this and I'm trying to train myself to not do it. And I, I think I even did it tonight when, when we did the announcements. I'm trying to stop asking for volunteers in church. We should never, ever, ever, ever use that word again, as far as I'm concerned, in church. We should never ask born-again believers in church to volunteer for things. You're saying, Chris, you've lost your mind. What are you talking about? Because here's the, here's the reality. I'm just, now just follow me for a minute. So I read in the dictionary the definition of a volunteer. Here's what it said a volunteer is. It's a volunteer is someone that offers to do something that you don't have to do. Now follow with me for a minute. Second Timothy 2, 3, and 4. Paul says, share in suffering as a good soldier. So we are soldiers in Christ's army. That's one of the ways he describes believers. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. So we are soldiers in the Lord's army, but we didn't go down and sign up. Austin went down and signed up voluntarily. But when we were saved, we didn't volunteer for the army, we got drafted. We were enlisted, the Scriptures say. A word that I wasn't so familiar with is a conscript. And that is literally someone that is drafted into the service. And so when my point about the volunteers is, we aren't doing things that are, yeah, we don't have to do it if we don't want to. We have been called into the Lord's army and into His service. It's not optional. And when we ask for volunteers, we're saying to people, well, if you feel like it, go ahead. If you don't, no biggie. It is a big deal. It is a big deal to serve the Lord. You are falling far short of your calling in Christ if you decide to do nothing for His service. That's the reality of it. We don't need volunteers. We need Christians that are willing to find their calling and purpose and get busy. And that's what Paul is saying to Timothy. He says, I've been called by Christ because God saved me, and that has given me this opportunity to carry out the work that God has for me. In 1 Peter 4.10, Peter writes there, as each has received a gift. So, how many Christians, once you're saved, how many Christians get a gift? What percentage? 100%. There has never been a born-again believer that didn't get some kind of spiritual gift from the Holy Spirit. So if you're saved, you have a gift. You may not know what it is, 
but you have one, okay? And we hope to help you find your gift here. That's one of the things. The first things that I want to do is help each and every member here find out what their gift is. Because the scriptures say, as each has received a gift, use it, there you go, use it, to serve one another, right? As good stewards of God's varied grace. A steward is somebody that manages a house. So God's, God's went away for 2,000 years. He's went back to heaven to prepare a place for us. And he's left his church on earth to carry out his work. And so we're stewards of what he's given us. And so we have a job to do, right? He's given us, he's given us our talents, our abilities. He's given us directions. And we're supposed to go out and do something with those things. And so Peter goes on and says, uh, whoever speaks, speak as though the oracle of God, whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belongs glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. That's the purpose. You were saved to serve. There's no getting around it. You're not a volunteer. You're drafted. You're drafted. Right? And so Paul says, I, I have this call on my life because God saved me. Um, and here's the thing, really, and I'm not trying to guilt or shame you, but I do want you to think about this. God put this on my heart as I was putting this sermon together, and it, it convicted me as I thought about it. And I wrote it down just so I wouldn't forget how he gave it to me. But after the debt that Jesus paid to forgive our sins, so if we really understand just how guilty we were before God, and that he would come and send his son to suffer and die to forgive our sins. After the debt that Jesus paid to forgive our sins, our response should never be, sorry, Jesus, serving you is too costly or time-consuming. After the price that God paid, does it really sound like a valid excuse to say, God, I'm sorry, I'm too busy, it costs too much for me to do that in the face of what he did for us? I think the answer to that is a resounding no. And so we're called into service, and our service flows, and Paul's service flows. This is what he said. I'm called as a command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our what? Our Savior, our hope. The command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, as the old hymn says. You know... I'll say this, and I don't want to rile up anybody, but my hope is not in the president. As good as he may be, my hope is not in the president. My hope is in the King of Kings and in the Lord of Lords. My hope is not in anything this world has to offer. My hope and my treasure is laid up in heaven. My hope is not in humanity as much as I love each and every one of you. My hope is not in any of you to figure this thing out for me, and I hope your hope's not in the pastor, because I can't save you either. My hope is in the Godhead, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. My hope is not in the marvels of modern medicine. My hope is in the one that overcame the grave. My hope is not in science. My hope is in the one that spoke all this into existence. Because the Scriptures tell me that our hope lies in a person. And that person is Jesus. The Apostle Peter said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The Apostle Paul said he was looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. And the Apostle John said, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we will see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. And one more scripture about hope. In Romans 5, 5 says, Hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given us. Our hope is in Christ and the finished work on the cross and the victory that He had in His resurrection. That's the only reason why I can face tomorrow. Just again, like the hymn says, because He lives, I can face tomorrow. Because He lives, all fear is gone. Because I know He holds my future. It says the future, and He does, but He holds my future as a believer too. And life is worth the living just because He lives. Right? Listen to what Warren Wearsby said. He said, Biblical hope means confidence in the future. A lot of you tonight came in this place and you're so worried about tomorrow because you haven't put your trust in Christ. Maybe you have as a Savior, but you're not trusting Him. He can save your soul, but He can't take care of your problem tomorrow. Does that sound ridiculous? It is. It is. If He can save you, if He can make dead men live, He can handle your problems. Right? Warren Wearsby said, Biblical hope means confidence in the future. It's a confidence born of faith. When Jesus Christ is your Savior and Lord, the future is your friend. Some of you are fearing tomorrow, and you have nothing to fear. The future is your friend. You don't have to worry. He says, why is this so important? When we lose hope, we lose joy in the present because we have no confidence in the future. Hope is a confidence that when God is in control, we have nothing to fear. What is the basis of our hope? It's the character of God. Our hope for the future is founded on the promises of God's Word. God's faithfulness in keeping His promises in the past gives you confident hope for the future. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If He took care of things in the past, if He saved Israel, if He saved His people, if He saved souls throughout the centuries, He can take care of you. And He will. And so, our service, as we wrap this up in verse 2, our service is sacrificing for the good and growth of other people. Look at what He says in verse 2. He says, after he's qualified himself because God saved him and Christ is his hope, he says, I'm writing to Timothy, my true child in the faith. Like I said, Paul was 30 years older than Timothy. This man at this time is probably in his early mid-60s. Timothy's probably in his early mid-30s, right? And so, 30 years separate these guys. And yet Paul took an interest in this younger man. And here's another thing that troubles me. What do we do in most Baptist churches in America today? We say, all right, kids, go off to another area of the church and be with other kids. What do we do with the youth? Youth, find a room and paint it all kinds of wild colors and put you a ping pong table in there and stay to yourself and hang out with each other. Right? And again... 
I am not anti-children's church. I'm not anti-youth programs. You know that I'm one of the biggest advocates of those things, right? But the problem with that is, if we want children to grow in their walk with Christ, and we want youth to grow in their walk with Christ, they're not going to do that by hanging out with other 5 and 15-year-olds. Right? When you take 15-year-olds and put them in a room, they're not going to come up with ways to fix the world. Most likely. Not to say that young people don't have good ideas and suggestions. I'm not downplaying that. They have some great ideas. But I'm saying when it comes to spiritual growth, it has to start in the home, number one. But number two, when it is in church, there's got to be godly, mature men and women that are willing to invest in their lives. They have to. They have to. And I thank God for people in this church that have poured into my family and have poured into many of the young people here. I'm thankful for Rosie and Donna and all the volunteers, and we're praying for a youth leader, and I'm thankful for Vincent's burden to help the college-age kids, and I'm thankful for Brian who's mentored people and Jeff and many of other people here that take an interest in young people. That's how it should be. That's how it ought to be. Paul took an interest um, in them, and so we've got to do the same. Psalm seventy-one, eighteen. listen to what it says there. Even to my old age and my gray hair, God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation and your power to all those who come. Paul invested in Timothy, and we need to find someone to invest in. He led Timothy to Christ, and then he mentored him. I gave you a paper when you came in, or you got a paper, about who is your one. And there's a statistic on there. 80% of people would come to church if they were invited, but on average only 2% of Christians have ever invited somebody. That's a problem. We're not investing in people. We're leaving it up to somebody else. And when everybody's looking to somebody else, guess what? Nobody does it. Right? Don't ever let the devil tell you that you can't do it. Because God has given you a command. He's enlisted you. He expects you to do it. Not in your own strength, but through Him. And listen, when you invest in somebody, you never know what the results might be. Listen to this story as we close. Caleb, you can come. D.L. Moody, most of you probably heard that name, the great evangelist from 1800s. D.L. Moody was an uneducated shoemaker when God saved him. And a man by the name of Reynolds told about the first time he ever saw D.L. Moody. Before Moody became famous, Moody was in a little shanty that had been abandoned by a saloon keeper. He was holding a small black boy in his arms and reading to him the story of the prodigal son. It goes like this. Moody couldn't even read all the words. So he had to skip them. And Reynolds thought, if God can ever use such an instrument as that for his honor and glory, it will certainly astonish me. Yet we all know that God used D.L. Moody. And he can use you and he can use me the same way. Just as he used shy, timid Timothy. Because we've been saved, church, to serve. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you tonight that you became a man, that you sent your son the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and that He laid down His life willingly. And He bled and He suffered and died on that cross for my sins and for the sins of everyone in this room. Three days later, He rose from the grave. And now He offers that salvation freely to whoever will come. And tonight, Lord, as we're gathered in this room, perhaps somebody here tonight knows they're lost, knows that they need a Savior. I pray tonight is the time when they would step out in faith and come and surrender their life to Christ.
And Lord, there are people in this room that are fearful about tomorrow, that have so many burdens and they're overwhelmed by cares and concerns and uncertainty. And they are a child of God that has access to the throne room. You are a God that is control over all things. And they're frantically trying to figure things out when you already hold the world in your hands. God, help them tonight to lay it down and trust you with their burdens, with their needs, and most of all, with their life. And God, maybe there's someone in this room that's backslidden and they have a relationship with you, but it's not where it ought to be. God, the story of that prodigal son is so encouraging because as soon as they turn up that road for home, you're waiting on them with open arms and forgiveness. So God, maybe tonight they need to come home and just say, I'm ready to get back on track to serving God. So Lord, as we have this invitation, have your way. Draw men unto yourself and bring glory to your name, Father, and we'll give you praise for all of it. For it's in Jesus' precious and holy name we pray. Amen.